hello there, and welcome to the show, everyone. Can you believe I've made it to just four days left of school? I know, you're kind of tired of hearing about it, and I won't go on, but I think it's safe to say we're all ready for it to be over, and I am so ready to join you guys on summer break. Anyway, as I try to keep things real today, I want to talk about the one end of the year thing I do that is a pain at the time that I'm doing it, but ends up being incredibly helpful in the long run. Before the last day of school, I always write out my entire first week of plans for the next year in as complete a way as is possible. Not only is this a huge time saver in September, but I don't have to worry about it during the summer and at the very end of August, which I normally would do, would be just kind of hanging over my head. And even better, the status of every class and grade level is pretty fresh in my mind at the end of the year, but will literally leave it the second my feet hit the sand. So I'm able to write out fairly clear plans about where they should start before school ends. And doing this helps me not have to guess in, let's say, August before school starts. Try it. You'll thank me later. As we near the end of the first season of the podcast, I really wanted to turn our focus in the last two episodes to John's first steps in music for infants and toddlers. For me, this is a favorite topic, and honestly, I cannot get enough of the littlest littles, although I do love big kids, and I love my kids in the middle as well. But this is such a favorite topic that when John and I sat down to talk, we ended up with enough material easily for a two-part show. So without further ado, I would just like to introduce you again to John Feyerabin and invite you to listen in on part one of our conversation. Well, I'm here with John Feyerabin. We are in Blue Island, Illinois. Today, I wanted to talk with you about the infant-toddler curriculum. We've now done a couple of episodes where we've talked about first steps for preschool and beyond, basically, although you touched on some of the infant-toddler stuff. And then we've talked about conversational solfege, which is your program for students who once they have become tuneful, beatful, and artful through the First Steps program, uh, you move on to help them become truly kind of independent musical thinkers who can also read notation. And now we're kind of going backwards because I'm thrilled to say there's an uptick in music teachers who are wanting to do work with infants and toddlers yes which is fantastic and extremely necessary dare i say it the most important work well i think so and it's an easy add-on for a teacher there i think quite a few music teachers either teach private piano or direct the sunday school church children's choir or they do something besides their full-time job right and this is a real easy thing to add on if it was just wednesdays after school and you taught a class for birth to one and a class for one-year-olds and a class for two-year-olds. The town I live in does that kind of thing, six elementary schools on Wednesdays after school. The community that would eventually attend that school are sent notices that these classes are happening and they can sign up for them. We always have a waiting list for these classes. And what's wonderful about it is they are families that will eventually go to that particular elementary school. So by the time they arrive as kindergarten children, those that have attended these pre-kindergarten music classes are already quite musical and they Mm. infect the other children. Absolutely. You know, when you have a kindergarten classroom with hardly any musical children, it's a real rough game to try to get that class uh. to 
to move forward. A lot of remediation. But if there's 10 kids in that class that sing beautifully, it happens pretty fast because kids learn really well from other kids. Right. So this idea of doing these early childhood classes, it makes sense that an elementary music teacher might consider preparing the children to come to an elementary school. And from the research that we know about the neural development and music perception, that the first couple of years are absolutely critical. By the time they come to kindergarten, most children have been musically neglected to a certain degree, and we work in kindergarten to remediate from the loss of experience. So music teachers, I think it's great to hear that they might be taking more of an interest in this early childhood, because it really is central to, if they are truly committed to helping children becoming tuneful, beatful, and artful, they will find a way to reach out children that are younger than five. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think let's just start with my asking you to talk about how you came to develop the infant-toddler curriculum. Well, there were little bits along the way. I didn't initially set out to develop an infant and toddler curriculum, or maybe for that matter, any early childhood. I think most people have heard the story that I started to develop an early childhood curriculum in uh, Philadelphia around 1981-82. But prior to that, there were a couple of moments. Uh, I graduated in the Kodai program in 1978, and in the fall of 78, there was a Kodai conference here in Chicago. Hmm. I don't think I've ever talked about this. No, I don't remember. And I was just attending all the sessions, and a lot of them were, you know, here's what you do for Somi, and here's what you do for Tantiti. And they were pretty things that I didn't need to know. I already had a master's degree in Kodai. But there was one a couple. I wish I could remember their names. Their last name is Steckman. Okay. And they're here in Chicago, or Oak Park. And I believe they've since opened a little studio of music, the oh, really? Steckmans. And the Steckmans did a presentation on infants and toddlers. And I never even occurred to me. And it wasn't very much. I think they had 10 songs. But they were sharing at that presentation, here are songs and rhymes where music was shared with babies. And it really piqued my interest. Yeah. I went, well, of course. Of course, babies. Now, I hadn't gotten far enough in my doctoral program to realize the significance, and now I know right. that's really significant. Sure. That but it just made, it was logical. It, it seemed, I hadn't seen anybody else do that. Hmm. You know, it, I've often said all of my earliest experiences in early childhood were pre-kinder care and pre-music right. matters and pre-music together and pre, so there were no early yeah, childhood music programs there. back then. So the Steckmans were doing this little thing with babies, and I thought, well, wow, that's a good idea. Right. And it just sort of sat there for for a while. But then as I was nearing the end of my doctoral program, I was invited to give a presentation at First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia on what I had learned about. It was more of a scholarly talk about music development right. and, and uh, neural, perception of and, okay. neural development and perception of tune. There was a coffee hour afterward, and these two little ladies came up to me, and they said, you know, you spoke about early intervention and songs and rhymes. We used to do this one. And she told me some little rhyme for, I don't know, tapping on the bottom of a baby's foot. And I said, just a minute, and I took out my little pen, and I had the program from the lecture, and I wrote her little, that was, that's great, you know, thank you, right. thank you. And the other lady, well, do you know this one? And she gave me one I'd never heard before, and I wrote it down, and I went, well, you know, you know the Steckmans were, you know, <laughs> and this is, right. maybe I should start interviewing old people. Yeah. And that started a whole thing. Just about this time, I got my first job at the University of Oklahoma, and I taught a graduate level class called Music in Early Childhood, and I started giving it as an assignment to the graduate students. Mm -hmm. You have to go into senior citizen centers and interview people. By midterm, you have to collect 10 songs and rhymes that they have recalled doing with babies, hmm. which was new for everybody. Nobody had really That's looked amazing. at songs and rhymes with babies. But 
the idea of going and asking old people, one, came from the fellowship hall experience in Philadelphia, but also I recalled my training in Kodai when I learned that Hungary was looking for the development and improvement of music education, and they wanted Kodai's idea to base it on folk songs, but German was the official language in Hungary right. at that time, and all the kids in schools were being taught in German, and if they learned any songs, they were German folk songs. So this is like in the mid-1930s, most Hungarian folk songs had been forgotten. Hmm. So Kode and Bartok, with their commitment to using folk songs as the means of pedagogy, went up into the mountains in Hungary with wax cylinders, at the time it was wax cylinders, and found old people that lived in the mountains that had been cut off from civilization, right. like our Appalachian mountain people that remember songs from 200 years ago. He found hmm. Hungarians in the mountains that remembered the authentic old Hungarian folk songs. And that stuck with me. So he found it with the oldest people. What did they remember? And I thought, that's where we're going to find these songs for babies, the oldest people. And over that time in the 80s when we were doing this collecting, it was real apparent. The people that were over than 80 knew the most. So. The people that were 60 to 80 knew a few of these songs and rhymes, but the people that were younger than 60, if you would say, tell me a song or rhyme to tap on the bottom of a baby's foot, nothing. Hmm. Uh, wiggle their fingers, they might know this little piggy went to market. But I'd say, okay, tell me a different one that wiggles fingers. Right, and they were like, nothing. that's all I got. And frankly, I didn't know very many myself. My mom had done this little piggy went to the market and patty cake with me, and I remembered a few of those little games that she had done. But that was, my repertoire was five. You know, but this collecting was fascinating. So the, the, there might be 10 graduate students at the University of Oklahoma who then would come in at midterm with their, their collected songs. We would listen to each other's recordings. Their job was to transcribe the recordings into notation, and then I would copy everybody's notation for everybody else. There would be an, an awful lot of overlap. So in a class of 10 children or 10 college students, you would think each collected 10, you'd get 100. Well, you might get 30 right? because there right. was that much overlap in what was collected. But it was fascinating as I then went on to the Hart School and continued this assignment in the early childhood classes, resistance grew. Year after year, the resistance grew stronger and stronger. I visited 15 centers, and I only <laughs> could collect three things. I visited 20 centers, I didn't collect anything. Oh, and the students were complaining and complaining, but it was true that in the earliest collecting in the early 80s, those that were over 80 knew the most. And by the time we were at 2000, they were long gone. Like, and the it. 60 to 80s, many of them were long gone. And so this group that I initially ran into that did have a memory of some of this stuff, and they would have been born before 1900. If, I was, if they were over 80 and in 1980 I'm collecting, they were born before 1900. Hmm. So what you, look, you start comparing, well, what was, why? Do all these people over 80 know so much and the people under 80 don't know so much? And I think it was the arrival of technology. Yeah, so, television and, and radio. And the phonograph, actually, yeah. and then radio. Uh, and, it, you know, when, when uh, Edison invented the phonograph, he said to his assistant, well, that's the end of civilization as we've known it. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah. Because starting with the phonograph, we changed from a society of music makers to a society of music consumers. consumers. And we stopped singing to children. We thought, well, we'll just let this radio play or we'll just let right. this phone this record play and sometimes people sang along with them but as we know when you sing along with someone else that's singing strongly or playing a recording split second singing starts coming in and that actually isn't very helpful for developing a tuneful mind right so the earliest intervention especially this first year when parents were still playing with their babies uh, was having a wonderful effect you know again you, you could say it's a coincidence i don't think it is 
80 years later, those over 80s that remembered all those, they also were the subscribers to the symphony orchestras around the country. Mm. And I remembered being a consultant to the Pittsburgh Symphony one time uh, where there was a group of us that went to talk about music education that the symphony members could do for outreach. And we made this point about this early childhood thing, but the director of the Pittsburgh Symphony addressed all of us at the beginning and said, you know, our subscription for the Pittsburgh Symphony declines by 2% every year, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see where we're going to be in 20 years. We have wow. to do something if we want to save orchestral music sure. or classical music. Right. But it's true, I think, when you start reflecting on these over 80s were the larger subscribers, and as those people were dying off, the subscription rate was declining by 2% every year, and there wasn't an interest in it because now we had fewer and fewer people that had music sung to them yes. in the earliest years. Those over 80s knew lots of songs and rhymes that they did with babies, and the neurological development of a child in the first two years is critical right. for all aspects of yes. learning, whether it's language or taste or seeing right. or sound or anything. So it certainly is true for music. And these children that were played with that later became the 80-year-olds old, they continued their interests. They had a higher perception of tune. They had a more Absolutely. innate um, in interest in it. Yeah, they're just more musical. They are. <laughs> right. And I think it's because of the infant and toddler stuff that took place back then. And as you see the death of that, you see also the death of, 80 years later, you see the death mm. of serious music and attendance at concerts. And I think it's interesting, uh, you and I and some others were talking last night about the perception of some people um, when it comes to music education, that music education is instruments. Instruments. And, and furthermore, that education starts later. I know. So it's like, oh yeah, you know, my my I want my kids to have music like when they're in middle school, I want them to be in the band. There's nothing wrong with being in the band, but that is not the genesis of music education. No, no. And even Suzuki that tries to start instruments younger, instruments are not the most effective way of helping a child become musical. Sure. Uh, a child should be uh, be, should become musical through na the natural singing and dancing and playing. Uh, play, you know, that's right. a, a child that's five and younger, they learn through play. Not play an instrument, Playing but play games yes. that are songs and rhyme games. So early Suzuki people, it's funny, I, I taught at the University of Hartford. We had a large Suzuki program, and they often enrolled children that were late threes and four-year-olds. Mm. And I'd say 50% of them within a year would drop. I remember of them talk, talking about it. 50% would drop. Well, that's because they're not musical. Mm -hmm. An instrument does not make a child musical. It's really a, a musical child can be invited to play an instrument as an Absolutely. extension of their musicality. And they should eventually. But an um, instrument will not make the child musical. Musical right. children that come to an instrument, stick with it. Non-musical children that come to an instrument will quit. Right. Because an instrument is not fun if you're not musical. And the instrument won't make you musical. No. So what will make you musical is early childhood <laughs> is music experiences. Doing music. <laughs> singing and dancing and playing the way children used to play. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I told you that we do recorder in third grade. I just shared a video on the Facebook page of this beautiful moment with a child, a student in my school, who struggles in so many areas um, in his life at home and, and academic things. But this kid can sing, you know, he loves music class. And I was having him sight read something, sing it first, and then try to play it. And it was 
that to me was like, this is how it should be. This kid is just inherently musical. He loves music. And then I say to him, do you think you can sing? Can you decode this? Like, that's the language he understands. Can you decode this into the do's, re's, and me's? And he's like, yeah, okay. You know, and he sings it. And then I'm like, why don't you try to play it now? Unrecorded? Yeah. yeah. And it's just this seamless, it's this extension yeah. of his musicality. Yeah. And I hear and see other things. Like I saw a video of some kids playing with an online thing and they were just playing, I don't know if they were just playing So and Me, but something that was so unmusical Ugh. and just, but they loved it because it had all the flashing things. Oh, and. No. But I just thought, could they sing it? Would they? And I just was thinking of these children who I'm, you know, it's not always perfect. I'm not saying that, but when you hear a kid who's musical, you know, who as, I don't know if it's Kodai who said it first, but I remember Lily saying it to me, breathing life into the skeleton of the music. That's you said that. <laughs> yeah, notation yes. is the skeleton of music. You have to breathe life into the skeleton yes. to make music. Yes, and it's so funny. My son just had a recital, and I talked to him about that, and I noticed it changed the way he played. I said, the problem is you're playing it okay, but it's not moving me. It's not music. Yeah, and I said, think about this concept. Breathe life into this thing that a composer wrote that meant something to him or her, now you. And if you have trouble figuring out how to breathe life into it, it could be that the piece of music itself isn't worthy yep. of, being, of having life right. breathed into it. It right. has no life. It yeah. is just a bunch of notes and rhythms and words. Yeah, And, and these, there's plenty of that. Yeah. And these things start, you know, the fact that my son was saying, I, in my mind, if I can sing it, I play it differently. If I can sing it as I'm playing. You know, there's so many famous classical composers who have said exactly that. I think it was Schumann who said, our only hope is that instrumentalists will learn to sing through their instruments. Yeah. I mean, that's it, it's not an, a new idea. No. It's an artful idea Absolutely. that we need to keep being reminded of. Yeah, and so, so now let's go back. You started collecting these things. You started doing this. When did it start to formulate into this? Almost. So I... It, uh, it, it, when I was still in, in Philadelphia in my doctoral program, um, and I started ex experimenting in those two different schools, it was the downtown campus of Temple University. We had a center city campus, and I did Saturday early childhood parent-child classes. And then I also worked at a school in a suburb of Philadelphia called the Hegvik School of Music. And she was someone who had taken some grad classes, and we ran into each other, and she said, I'd like you to come. And experiment and try to develop some early childhood stuff at our school as well. So in these two places, um, this is before Oklahoma. So it was just before I went to Oklahoma. I had seen the Steckmans. I had done that lecture. I think those early childhood classes, I wasn't doing babies yet. I would think the youngest I w did was two and a half or three. So I was still at the stage of their verbal. And what do you, you start music classes once children are verbal. Right. So it wasn't until we got more of this collecting done in Oklahoma when I started sending us out, the students out to nursing centers and we started gathering a critical mass of this repertoire that I started experimenting there. So I was only at that school for three years, but all three of those years I added infant and toddler classes. So there were two early childhood centers, one at downtown Philadelphia, and uh, then there was a suburban music school called the Hegevik School of Music in Wayne, Pennsylvania. 
and run into this uh, person, Robin Hegvik, at one of the graduate classes. And she had this little music school and said, why don't you come out to my music school and, and work on developing an early childhood music class? And again, there wasn't much resources, but um, I had a, a few infant and toddler things. I had done a little bit of collecting, and it was the beginning. I wrote some lessons, and when I left, I was only there for three years and then took the job at the University of Oklahoma. But when I left, I left behind at the Hegvik School of Music lessons and songs and rhymes. And uh, I think that program continued for a little while without me. I remember when I left the, the Center City campus at Temple, um, I had developed that program. Nancy Hess, who was the director of the program, was the one who invited me to teach at the Temple Center City program. She was pretty sad about my leaving because the program was catching on. Right. Uh, the first year it was small, the second year was bigger, and the third year it was really come, catching on. That makes but sense. I was finished my doctorate and I was moving on to the University of Oklahoma. At the time, there were some other doctoral students that were there studying with Ed Gordon. Linda Jessup was the next one, and she came to me and she said, um, well, I'm going to take over your early childhood class next year when you are gone. Will you give me all of your materials? And I said, no. Oh, um, because I have plans to publish these materials. I already, by that time, had a contract with Boozy and Hawks to publish music for little people and music for very little people. So she took on the program, but only stayed for one year. And then Lily Labinowitz took over the program. And in the process of these uh, other Gordon doctoral students, the program changed dramatically from what I had developed. Okay. Uh, I developed with my philosophy of Kodai and folk music and um, authentic literature for developing stuff to... It developed into a music learning theory experiment. Right. They had that was where they started experimenting with early childhood. Sure, but it, it came after my program. I was there. I had already developed this program. I, I was at Temple before Ed Gordon, and I was developing this early childhood program. And when I left, the the Gordon doctoral students came in and changed it. Sure. So what went on at Temple Center City Campus was then a new thing, which later probably became Lily's Music Together program. Right. For what I for all I know. When I went to the University of Oklahoma then, and, and the doctoral students, or the graduate students were collecting, um, I did have enough, and I finished these, the two books that I had the contract for Boozy and Hawk. So while I was at Oklahoma, we published Music for Little People and Music for Very Little People. Just 50 songs for infants and toddlers. But 50 songs was a whole lot more than I knew three years early. Right. And then I, my collecting continued, even after that book published. And in time, I had something like three, 400 songs hmm. for infants and toddlers in my file cabinet, worried what would happen if I was in a plane crash right. with uh, this repertoire that I've gathered from these people. Uh, so I, by then, I had gotten the job at the University of Hartford, and I decided, you know, I think I'm just going to self-publish this stuff just so it, it's somewhere in so print. So it goes out, yeah. Just so it's in print, and I, it's not going to get lost if something happens. So I self-published, and it was 1990 when, it, when uh, GIA came along and said, would you like us to take over and publish the stuff that you are self-publishing? Uh, but by that time in 1990, again, my, my file cabinets were just filling and filling mm -hmm. and filling and filling because I and the graduate students were all collecting this stuff. Uh, th there also was another source for the infant toddler stuff that we haven't much talked about, and that is historical books. This started at the Milwaukee airport. If it, <laughs> As and, so many things do. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's where I got the googly eyes the first oh, time. Oh, really? The Milwaukee airport. <laughs> So the Milwaukee Airport, anyone that's been there knows there's a famous used bookstore in the middle of the really? airport. And I would go and always find something oh that word, I that I'd awesome. never heard of before. There would be these fantastic old books from 1900, folk song collections, wow. childing, parenting books. One parenting book I remember from late 1800s had a whole chapter called Baby Lap 
play. Oh my word. And in it were all these songs and rhymes for infant stimulation and gay, maybe for nothing else than, you know, socialization and joy and not for, it wasn't a music right, book. Right. It was just a child, a child book about games you can play with your child, children. And, and then don't forget how to do diapers and don't forget <laughs> right, how to right. do, you know, that kind of stuff. So gradually I found in other resources, references to other infant and toddler songs and rhymes and I was able to add some of that to the collection as well. So a lot of it came from field research, but a lot of it also came from secondary sources where somebody else had collected it and put it in these old historical books and I found the books mm. and was able to revive those songs and rhymes That's that included them in the other books. As far as seeing presentations at conferences that would address babies, infants and toddlers, Except for the Steckmans back in the 80s in Chicago, I didn't see anybody talking about babies for another 10 years. You know, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know that I still see a ton. Not much, not at a music conference, because it's not in the public school years. Yeah, but that's... And that's probably why Lorna Heige started the Early Childhood Music and Movement Association. Hmm. So there would be an educational association focused on early childhood music and movement. Right. Okay, so now you have these collections. Yeah. Oh, I had I, one other thought since yes. we are just talking about that. You, you know, earlier in this podcast, we were talking about the teachers and how I suggest that they reach out to children that are younger than kindergarten, even in their own school districts. And part of that is there are early childhood music classes now that have caught on and are going around the country. There are these businesses that have started early childhood classes. But the people that are teaching those classes are frequently not music people. Hmm. Uh, you'll go and they will follow the lesson plans or the lessons t as much as they're able based on what's been given them by the early childhood businesses. But the people that are actually there are not the most musical models. They don't know to sing in which keys correctly. They right. don't use their vocal They're doing their best. They just don't know. They don't know. They love children. They right. love music. But that's it. Mm -hmm. And I believe that only the best is good enough for children. And I think it's music teachers that have had four years of music training that have had their artfulness polished. Sure. Maybe they're good enough to sing Maybe. a little child song beautifully. <laughs> mm -hmm. But someone who doesn't have that background, they'll sing the words and the melody, perhaps the song. I, they might sing it even in tune. More likely they won't. But it certainly won't be sung with the same artfulness that a musically trained person would. So I think the child should benefit by having a music person teaching these classes as opposed to an early childhood person teaching right. these classes. A kindergarten classroom teacher is not going to know all of the subtleties that make it efficient and effective. Right. A musically trained person will know the subtleties to make it efficient and effective. And I won't say that the kindergarten teacher won't have some impact, but it won't be anywhere near what a specialist could bring right. to Right, and a you're at the time of life where you can maximize their ability to it's take the, things in. The most important Why age. not give them the most highly qualified and passionate person. But here we're talking about kindergarten. Yeah, we're supposed to be focusing on babies. And, <laughs> but still, the concept is, I think music teachers reaching out to offer classes for babies, parents and babies in their community, as opposed to somebody else offering classes for parents and babies that really don't have a music Sure, background. sure. I, I, I hope people listening to the podcast have musical training, and if they don't, I hope they respect the concept that like learning a foreign language should be taught by somebody who speaks that language well. Sure. And learning music should be taught by somebody who musics well, mm -hmm. and not just adequate, right. but well. Right. So now that we've talked about 
kind of the things that sparked and piqued your interest and the things that, you know, propelled you forward in finding out yourself about what's happening, what's out there for children and then collecting all this. How did you begin to collate it, you know, put it together? That's really, it it happened, it was not so hard to do when I started going through the file cabinet. So by the time I had a couple of hundred songs and rhymes that I thought would be done with babies, um, I started just putting them in piles according to the type of activity. Uh, Many of them were for bouncing a child on their knees. So I put all the ones that were about bouncing a child on their knees in one pile. A lot of them were about wiggling the fingers or toes like this little piggy. And I put all of them in one pile. And it it was, there were, by the end, I ended up with like six piles. Hmm. And all the songs were rhyme, were gone. And they neatly fell fell into these six categories. And I went, well, there it is. Bounces, wiggles, tickles, tapping, clapping, simple songs and circles. So it was just these. How interesting. Categories. Yeah. And I went, well, there it is. So, and, and, and this balance, because that was, of course, something that I, I felt that was important, that the students would hear many, I call them colors, that they would hear many colors of music, not just major songs, but major right. songs and Aeolian songs. And especially in our folk culture in America, Aeolian, Dorian, and Mixolydian happen a lot. And I wanted to be sure they heard tonalities that were living tonalities in our music. We didn't bother with Phrygian and Lydian because there are no songs in Phrygian and Lydian. They're just contrived, composed things in Lydian oh and Phrygian. So we left those out. But there are so many wonderful modal songs that I wanted the children to have this balance in their experience that they heard the different colors of tonalities when they heard these songs, and also meters. It was important that they didn't get stuck on the typical 2-4 meter. Um, most of Kodai, you know, is this 2-4 meter, which was what I was trained in. So it was natural for me just to think that way. But along the way, I started expanding. Well, there also has to be feel of three. And, mm-hmm. and they, our students started struggling when they got to threes because they hadn't had much experience with it. When I went through this collection and all these piles in these six categories, it was already done for me. Mm-hmm. There was quite a nice little balance of twos and threes and majors and minors and modes, and it was all done. Right. It was because it was natural. Yeah. It's, it's, I always thought of myself in the early stages of I was the health food aisle at the grocery store. That right now in the health food aisle, you have to think back in the 80s, the health food section in a grocery store would be a small right, area little. of the grocery store. And there were a handful of people that cared, and they would buy the stuff that they thought was good nutritionally as time went on more and more people caught on to this health food thing and they started not succumbing to marketing but but becoming more intellectual about their choices and the health food aisle got bigger and bigger and bigger and I felt that was me I was the health food section of that of music education and I was going to provide what I thought was natural the natural approach to we eat natural foods and organic foods and these are natural songs and this is organic from people right that we would do this and it was funny, it was small, and people would hear it, and, and there was a small group of, and then more people, yeah, I was and then more say. people, and now look at fame. I yeah. mean, there's nearly 10,000 people on our Facebook page that yeah. agree this natural approach makes more sense. And I think these infant-toddler things are the most natural of all of them. I think they came from a mother or a father, probably a mother, mother's love and protection for an infant and the art comes through her voice as she's comforting the child, as she's loving the child, as she's um, amusing the child. It comes, and you see the shiny eyes in the mother and the child looking up that's only weeks old, the shiny eyes in the infant. And it's not only helping their brain process tune, which of course we're music teachers we care about, but the social connection and the social adjustment. And a child that feels loved through songs and rhymes and giggles 
is going to be adjusted socially later yes. on. We're going to avoid all kinds of neurological, <laughs> social problems with the children because they were loved through music. So I think even the infant toddler stuff, why were those historical books weren't referencing them because mm. of musical development? They were referencing them because of social development, that right. these were things that helped a child grow to be socially adjusted. Yeah, and just the bonding that takes bonding. place. Once I came up with these categories, bounces, wiggles, tickles, tapping, clapping, and simple songs and circles, then it just became a matter of, for the infant toddler, what needs to happen in the first two years of life is the child needs to be engaged, and by the time they're in their twos, you should be able to evoke movement responses from them and even a few vocal responses from them. So you move from birth to the twos by exposing them, just like language. I remember a dad coming to me one day when I just first started the infant toddler classes saying, well, I've got a one-year-old, my wife's having me bring my one-year-old to class. What can you teach a one-year-old to do? He was very skeptical. <laughs> and I simply said, well, you, do you not talk to your one-year-old mm -hmm. just because your one-year-old can't talk? Right, you just leave them over there until they're about four. Yeah, and a lot of people think, well, they'll get music education in school when they're right. in kindergarten, we'll just wait. Or in band. We'll just wait. <laughs> Well, no, you see, because there are You're critical periods time. in neural development. It's not just wasting time. You've done brain damage. Sure. Because neglecting neural stimulation in certain areas causes a irreversible loss of that potential, hmm. especially in the first two years. So most children do not receive the right kind of exposure they should in the first two years. And even if they come to a preschool program at age three or four, they've already lost quite a bit. We'll do our best to remediate, and we can have a better chance of remediation at three than four, and four than five. Right. But the best possible scenario would have been talk to your baby for right. the first two years of life, sing to your baby, and let them feel rhythm, beat, bouncing, and tapping for the first two years of life. And then it will be second nature to them. Their neurofibers will have just developed in a way that that's, those are natural instincts. Right. And everything else just is easy. They just sort of absorb music yes. after that. And, the, and then they have the desire to learn more. And it's the same thing as speech and learning how to relate to people. You don't say, you know, well, I can't talk to you about, you know, the subtleties of a relationship between two people when you're one. No, but I'm demonstrating to you what it's like. A baby is exposed to all these things all the time. Why not music? Yeah, I don't know. I think once upon a time, 100 years ago, sure. babies were exposed to music. Yeah, just naturally. The, the, the evidence is in the quantity of repertoire I was able to collect from 80 pluses. Right. When I was able to collect so much from them, that's evidence that it existed and that I was not able to collect it from people that were younger than 60 is evidence it stopped existing. Yep. And then when you kind of look for the correlates, like what is, oh, okay, so there was the phonograph, and then there's the radio, and, and then TV, the I think, is the- more technology that arrived, the, the less people started doing. <laughs> yep, and like we keep saying, now we are primarily consumers, consumers of music, who I think fool ourselves into thinking that things like karaoke, um, you know, singing in the car, which are kind of musical-ish, you I know. I think that's fun to do. Absolutely, but should not comprise, like, the whole of your musical experience. No, and a lot of times, especially if you haven't had much music background, you, you go to a karaoke and you hear people get up to the microphone that are not tuneful. They, are, they speak words in rhythm. Mm -hmm. Or shout words. In shout words in rhythm. And they think they're singing. Because they, to them, because they don't have a tuneful brain, 
they don't know that what they're missing. It's like a colored blind person not seeing the colors. Well, a, a person with very low tonal perception is not going to notice or be able to right. uh, find tones to match. They just speak rhythms, yeah, words and rhythms. Kind of approximating everything. Like a lot of preschool teachers will do that do not have music yep. background. They tend to work with three and four-year-olds on songs, the rhythm and the words. My children went to the University of Hartford Magnet School, and Barbara was the lead early childhood teacher Poor there. Poor Barbara. <laughs> Barbara is our neighbor, and we still see each other, and we are still friends, and Barbara thanks me for the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, I went in to go pick up Andrew when he was about four one time. It was, it was half-day preschool at the university, and they were having group time, and Barbara was singing Eensy Weensy Spider with them just as bad as you can imagine. Oh you know, it was words and rhythm. Eensy Weensy Spider went up the water spout. Right. And all the children, of course, were singing exactly like her. What she was teaching the children was the words and the rhythm are important and don't pay any attention yeah. to the tune. The words and the rhythm are important, don't pay any attention to the tune. And then you hear things like, oh, well, the parents are going to be at the program tomorrow, so you're going to have to do it loud. Yes. So my now favorite. you have to do words and rhythm loud. Right, louder. It's just, the, it's in the wrong hands. You yeah. see, well intentioned, but because of what they don't know, they're actually doing things that are. Damaging, damaging yes. the development of the musicality of the child. If a child is exposed to songs and rhymes without accuracy and tune for enough years, eventually they're going to become desensitized to accuracy. Sure, sure. They're going to think that it's all about words and rhythm. Yeah, and those neural circuits are hardened it's you know, for those things. They will have passed the critical period for tune, and then they're going to be just Silver. like all the others that can yep. speak words and rhythm. Then you're at a Chili's and somebody's singing a happy, happy birthday, birthday, and you just want to crawl under the table and cry. It's sad. <laughs> It, the, what's really sad about it is we know what to do, and we know how to fix it. Yep. But educational administration has to allow us do our job. to do, do our job. what we know needs yep. to be done to fix this. Yeah, and I recently found myself saying to a group of administration that this is not the fault of a preschool teacher or a kindergarten teacher. It's that you're trying to place things on their plate that they are not capable of doing. That's a and good they have point. no desire to do it. No, you know, I point. don't have a desire to teach reading, um, no matter how much I love reading. Or how about art? Right, oh goodness. Or math <laughs> would be a terrible thing. It's not because I'm a bad person, it's because that is not my wheelhouse. That is not what I do. And so since these are our children, and like you said, they deserve the very best, I'm sure my colleagues, the kindergarten teachers and the preschool teachers would agree, they are not the best facilitators of this I had stuff. an insight into this when I was at the University of Hartford. I worked with the College of Education um, and was friends with some of those professors over there. And we were having a discussion about subject matter courses. Uh, so you're going to become an elementary music teacher. How many courses do you take in teaching math? How many <laughs> courses do you take in teaching reading? How many courses do you take in teaching science? How many courses do you take in teaching social studies? How many, and all, the subject matter, how many courses? Now, how many courses do music teachers take in the content area for them to teach their subject? Dozens. Mm -hmm. From theory classes Feels to like history classes ends. to methods classes <laughs> to keyboard harmonies to you Plus name we're it. taking education courses. Every one of these is to help us know our content yep. at a really high level. So guess how many courses they have in reading and in math and in social studies and science. One for all of them. It's mm -hmm. called teaching in elementary school. No subject matter <laughs> courses. None about how to teach math or science sure. or Social studies, just 
teaching. And now they're going to throw music into that mix, too. Guess how many courses my students had in music at the University of Hartford? Kindergarten, the early childhood majors, the elementary school right. teachers. Guess how many courses they had on teaching music? None. Of course. None. And don't think I wasn't over there all the time, especially the early childhood people going, hey, I'm here. Right. I want to do this. If you need I'll teach me, these classes yes. for you. Just tell your, put it in your curriculum, music and early childhood. Every kindergarten teacher should have this course. Absolutely. We can't fit it in the schedule. All right. 30 years of we can't fit it in the schedule. So now we're going to say we're going to let those people be the people that teach these children right. music? Right. No way, Jose. And what I'm saying also is they don't want to do that. No, they don't. They, they, don't. Know, they're, they're, they know they're inadequate. There are very few people who are like, oh, I can do that. You know, if it were, if I were in that situation, I'd say I can. And again, the times have changed. I, in kindergarten in Detroit, right? So I'm talking now 1956. Right. I was four years old. Kindergarten in Detroit. My kindergarten teacher played the piano. Hmm. My kindergarten teacher taught us songs from Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. We learned, Whoa. brother, come and dance with me. With my foot, I tap, tap, tap. I remember doing the Hansel and Gretel <laughs> dances in kindergarten. Wow. With my kindergarten teacher. They don't do that anymore. No. Every kindergarten used to have a piano. Oh, in yeah. In Detroit, every kindergarten yep. had our, a piano. Our, in our district, we used to have that. Gone. Now we're going to say kindergarten teachers should teach music? No. Yeah. Or early childhood people should be teaching music? Not without music training. Right. Nope. Nope. We should be doing it. Yes. And we know what to do. Let us do it. Yeah. So we're going to do this as a two-parter, I think, because this first part has been so rich with kind of how you came to do this, but also the importance of it. And I know there are people listening who are getting that feeling of maybe I should da, 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 da. and so the next half of the, the interview we're going to talk about kind of the mechanics of your program for infants and toddlers but Great. before we do that I just want to say and we can reference it again later that there is um, you can do this Dr. Feyerabend brought it up earlier maybe after school, one day a week, you can do it. If that feels like too much, you can do something um, that I've done, which is, okay, about once a month, you know, I'm going to just, because I wanted to dip my toes into, can I personally handle my full-time teaching job plus the other things I do and add this? Because, But it's that important. So I started a thing where it was, okay, once a month, I'm going to have this class. It was a free class. At first, I just offered it to my faculty I call it faculty and friends. So if you, you know, if one of the teachers had a, a daughter who had a child or a son who had a child, bring them in. And what a tremendous, I mean, it was just this fantastic experience all the way around. So for those of you listening who think, well, I can't go, you know, to the YMCA and say, can I rent a space? And, you know, you don't need to go start a studio to the do The School of Music was in her living room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so. Keep that in mind as you listen to this podcast and the next one, um, that there is a way for you to do this uh, at, at some level and that you will be affecting change yes. no matter what you do. Yes. You know, even if you did it six times a year, it's, it is, I think, better than nothing. And it may give you the impetus to think, um, I think people will start saying, I want to do this more. You know, I also have one more reason why they might want to do this. And I always jokingly refer to myself, this is my devil speech. 
because I'm going to oh, oh mention money. My, oh, uh, the, the evil thing this to talk is a about pragmatic money. speech. Yeah. Uh, it's a it, when teachers, as I mentioned, often do some part-time teaching outside of their school. They finish their full-time job and then they go have piano lessons or trumpet lessons or the children's choir, and they're paid. These classes are not expensive, really, for a teacher or for a family. Um, and you know, you say, "Well, what do you charge?" Well, that's depends on the neighborhood. The best thing to do is to look to see what other early childhood centers are charging and be comparable. You don't want to be overpriced or underpriced, but at a low end, it would be $100 for a set of a semester, 10 lessons yeah. or 12 lessons or something. That's $10 a lesson. That's <laughs> a low price, but let's just stick with that. Sure. So if a teacher teaches a class, and my recommendation is 8 to 10 children in a class is plenty because the parents is. and children together, that makes 20. So let's say you have 10 children and they're paying this $100. In 12 weeks, you've got $1,000. For 12 hours. Okay. And all you've taught is a half-hour class yeah. 12 times, and you got $1,000. So if you did that for music in my first year, 10 kids from birth to one, and then the next half hour, teach a class for one to two-year-olds, and the next half hour, teach one for two to three-year-olds, and the next half hour, teach one for three to four-year-olds. In 12 weeks, in two hours a Wednesday, you'll make $4,000. That's a lot of money. Saturday mornings, maybe you can find a YMCA or your Sunday yep. school rooms are not a being church. used. Yep. And you offer something to the community similarly. Another two hours, four and a half hours, another $4,000. Do it in the springtime, and you've got a, another 12-week sem seminar, and you've got 4000 and 4000 It starts adding up. Yeah. So sure. in just a Wednesday afternoon of two hours and a Saturday morning of two hours, if you did that for 12 weeks in the fall and 12 weeks in the spring, you would make $16,000 which is a nice little hefty second income. Absolutely. You won't make that teaching piano lessons. No, I was just going to say, and that is, you know, one kid a half an hour and then another half an hour and then another half an hour. And the good you are doing I was just far say. exceeds one child having piano lessons right. when you have hundreds of children mm. that you are changing their lives at yes, an so age where it needs to be changed. Go out there and do it. Yeah, there's no reason saying. not to do it. No. We've, we've, got, we've guided you with materials that are scientifically researched. We have um, it, 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 uh, enticed you with money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what more tempted can we you? do? We've talked about neuroscience. Yeah, and, and, about... and in the next podcast, let's get a little bit more into the neuroscience, too, and the, the um, neurological development that happens in those first two years for infants and toddlers. Well, that's a good idea. And on that note, we'll stop it for right now. Great. Thank Thanks you. For, thank you. I love talking about this. <laughs> and I love hearing about it. So thank you very much. All right. Welcome back. So those of you who have your own kids or grandkids or you're an aunt or uncle or you babysit or you're around very young children and you teach them, you're probably super excited by all the things that John said. But I also hope that those of you out there who perhaps are daunted by the idea of working with babies and toddlers, or maybe you've toyed with the idea of teaching them but have yet to do so, I hope that you are also excited and were inspired by what you heard. If so, please do not miss part two of our conversation in which John and I will talk more specifically about his first steps in music program for infants and toddlers and how uh, it's different than his first steps in music for preschool and beyond. 
And as always, please remember to join in or even create a conversation about what you've heard on this or any of the episodes of the podcast. And to do this, you just have to go to our Tuneful, Beatful, Artful Music Teacher Facebook page or the Twitter account or Instagram account and ask a question, uh, make a statement, and let's talk about it. On today's Ask Me Anything, we have this interesting question from Allison S. If you could have dinner with three people in music education, dead or alive, who would you choose and why? Now I've heard this kind of question many times, but nobody has ever asked me. So thank you, Allison. I absolutely love this question. Let's say John doesn't count in this list because I have the privilege of hanging out with him a fair amount. And obviously we've talked a lot. So in this dream meal with my music ed heroes, I definitely want Zoltan Kodai there because I really would love to hear his honest thoughts and insight on what he would see going on in his name here in America and around the world. It's something I ask myself all the time. I am not a Kodai certified teacher, but anytime I hear about his philosophy and I think about some of the things I see going on in his name, I just have to ask myself if those are things he would think were a good outcome of his philosophy or if maybe he would do things differently. So I definitely would want him there. I would also love to have Sandra Treehub there so we could talk about infant musicality and what happens when caregivers sing and talk to babies. I would love to talk to her about her amazing research so much that I have read. I could talk about that for hours with her. And for sure, I'd want my favorite neuroscientist and music lover, Stefan Kolsch, who, by the way, just began following me on Twitter, just saying, <laughs> just nerding out on that. He's the author of probably my most quoted quote, which is, musicality is a natural ability of the brain. And I just love that because it's showing us that neuroscience is catching up to what we already know, and that is every human being is inherently musical and just needs someone to help them bring it out. I would team up with these three giants, and then I'd get John to come on in, and we'd put the word out about how important music is to us as humans on individual, relational, and communal levels. <laughs> Plus, I'd make them eat Thai food with me because it's my favorite. How awesome would that be? Anyway, thanks for such a fun question, Allison. By the way, if you have a question you'd like to ask, I'd love to try my best to answer it. So please send it to tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com. Our podcast is generously supported by the Fire Robin Association for Music Education. And I bet you know what I'm going to ask. Are you a member of FAME? If not, why aren't you? It's relatively inexpensive and the benefits keep growing every month. Please visit firerobinmusic.org for more information. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Fireobin and his programs and resources, visit giamusic.com slash fireobin. And also, hit us up on the Fireobin Fundamentals page on Facebook, where we have a community of almost 10,000 teachers talking every day about what it means to be a music educator. If you haven't done so already, I would love if you would subscribe and review the podcast wherever you listen. Thank you so much for hanging out with me, and I hope it was encouraging, thought-provoking, and helpful. Please tune in 
for our next episode, which will be the last one of this season. And until then, keep on doing everything you can to create a more tuneful, beatful, artful world.